All right, well, we're wrapping this up tonight. I think it seems that some of our enthusiasm from some folks has kind of dwindled for, for this topic anyway. <laughs> and we have something else that we're, we're probably going to move, move it on to uh, after this. But over, we're going to be looking at Paul's writing and some, some other ones as well, but the rest of the New Testament, see what it has to say about this topic of dealing with believers that have fallen into habitual sin. And again, habitual sin is not sin that we do all the time, but sin that we have committed a lifestyle to and are no longer listening to the Holy Spirit that, this, that the lifestyle is wrong. We have committed that it is good and that God is in it. So we've shut down God being able to speak to us, no longer repentant. There are some people who they, they have a sin, as the Word of God says, that easily besets us, that uh, we seem to fall into easily. And they may even fall at once, twice, three, four times, and then repent. But they still know it's wrong. Even when they're doing it, they still know it's wrong. The people that are in this type of habitual sin do not see it as wrong anymore, even though the Word says that it's wrong. They have their reasons for saying it's, it's okay now. And no longer are they hearing the voice of God the Word of God, the Spirit of God, or believers on this matter. These are the people that we are speaking about, and how are we to deal with them? Of course, the sexual sins is one of the places that we see this, but it's not the only one. We're going to look at uh, a few other areas that are mentioned in the Bible here now. In 1 John 5, verse 14, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of Him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. This is a very easy to misunderstand scripture if you put your mind to it. But we want to make sure that we don't, don't walk in that. First off, he's talking about the things we ask the Father, according to the Father's will, that He hears us. That's how He starts that off. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of Him. That's the prerequisite. Then He goes on, if anyone sees his brother in, uh, sinning a sin, if you see, there, there must be a seeing that is here, not a hearing. A seeing. If I see my brother in sin, just because sister or brother so-and-so comes up and tells me that so-and-so is in sin, that's not what we're talking about here. It's talking about seeing. If you see a brother in sin. So in order for me to qualify for what this verse is talking about, I have to be the one who sees the brother in sin. Now, how many of you have ever been approached by another believer who saw a brother or sister in sin and asked you to deal with it? <laughs> yeah, we, we can't do that. We deal with the sins that we see, not the sins that we're told about. Because first off, we're subject to the per that person's opinion. Maybe they saw it wrong. Maybe they heard it wrong. Maybe their maturity level got kind of messed up in, in this thing. So first off, I need to be the one who sees the brother in sin. Now here's an interesting part where it goes to here. If anyone sees his brother in sin, which does not lead to death, there are sins that lead to death. There are sins that don't lead to death. You can go to heaven even if you have not repented of all your sin by the time you die. If you repented of all your sin on Tuesday, sinned on Tuesday night and Wednesday, died on Thursday, you could still get to heaven. Because there are some sins that don't lead to death. But there are some sins that do. And you better deal with those ones <laughs> before you get there. But we're not talking about, don't, don't get people in, in that fear. There wouldn't be that knowing that the Word of God talks about if unrepentant sin would keep me from heaven. And First John even deals with that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. That would include the things you didn't confess. So if we see a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Who are you to ask? Well, the context of 14 and 15 is asking the Father. So it seemed that this is asking the Father. Now, the, the uh, uh, translators think that too because they capitalized the he. He will give him life for those who commit sin. So they saw it as a, 
as God as well. Understand in the Greek, they're neither capitalized nor punctuated. It's, uh, it's, it's not set apart that way. When you see a uppercase he, it's an interpretive by the translators. It's never in the text because of the way that they wrote it. So, he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. So, I have to have the maturity to be able to discern between those sins that lead to death and those sins that do not. If I perceive that a sin leads to death, I am not to ask the Father about that, am I? I have to ask according to His will. There is a sin leading to death. There, is a, there are sins that do not lead to death. Now, we're not just talking about the unpardonable sin here. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. It does not, sin there is, does not say there is a sin. It says there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. If I see a brother in sin leading to death and I ask the father about that, doesn't that cause problems? I'm not asking according to the will of the father, which means I'm, not, I'm praying outside of the will of the father. I'm praying outside of the knowledge of the father, of, the, of what the father has, has told me about. I have to discern that. So if we see a person who's in a lifestyle sin that the Word of God says this leads to death, should I be praying for that person the same way I would pray about them if they were not in, in that kind of sin? If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Life will come to them. But if there is a sin leading to death, it does not say you should pray for that. That's a hard thing for us to stand on the sidelines for. Because this is a brother. This is somebody in the family. We have affection there. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So he says this is just another way to let us know there is sin that does not lead to spiritual death. But there is sin that does lead to spiritual death. When we get involved in an habitual sin, we have turned off, we've turned ourselves off from hearing from God from his word, from, from receiving the light of the gospel, from hearing from the spirit and receiving correction from other people. That is a sin that leads to death. We are going down a direction to lead to death. I have shut off the life-giving sources in my life. You can't pray for folks like that the same way you can pray for them when they have a sin that's not leading to death. It's not just saying that, well, they don't know that's a sin. It has nothing to do with it. Whether they know it's a sin or not has nothing to do with it. Is it a sin leading to death? Maybe it's just a sin that easily besets them. And we can pray for them in, in that way. So that's what he's talking about here. just wanted to get that part out of there first. But when we deal with brothers and sisters in sin, we're dealing with sins we see. If I have not seen the sin, I don't deal with them in the same way as those who have seen it. Because I haven't seen the sin. Don't take the word of another brother or sister that someone's in sin. Get to a place where you, you need to see it. Don't just take their word for it. Well, so-and-so, yeah, they're, uh, they're in homosexuality now. You know, they got a partner and this is what they're doing. Now, see, if I, if I don't know the scriptures, I hear that and now I'm tainted to that brother. I'm not praying for him the way that I was before. When I see them on the street, there's a wall that comes up there. And I don't even know if it's true. I just heard it. But the Word of God says on the basis of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Too many Christians are, are basing things on one. You cannot do it. Cannot be, if you base anything on one person's testimony, you are wrong. And I don't care what the actual, actual outcome is. You are wrong. I've had people, this church, other churches bring accusation against another believer, another person in the church. And I told him, I cannot act on your word. Cannot do it. I have to have two or three witnesses. And, um, and those, you know, sometimes you have faith in, in one witness and sometimes you don't have a whole lot of faith in one witness. 
You all know how that goes. But that's not the, the word of God doesn't bring that into, a, into bearing. It says you will have two or three witnesses. And they will bring the same testimony. That's what you have to hang on. Don't, don't, let, don't let people swing you around with, with that. It's just, it, it'll mess you up. Pull you into some things. We've got to have some maturity with us. Now again, just like we were talking about on Sunday, it is, our, it is not our position, but our words that get us heard. Too many times Christians think I have a position as a son that's going to get me heard. Your position does not get you heard. It is your words. We looked at Daniel. Daniel, for your words I was sent. Not his position. It was the words that got that, got that sent. The words we use in prayer are important. Not your position in the family. Now here our responsibility is to ask the Father. It is, it is not to go to someone else. It is not to go out and find two or three others. In this particular situation, what it's telling us to do is ask the Father for life in this situation. doesn't talk about involving anybody else. It is a hard thing for believers to see a person in sin and only talk to the Father about it. Real hard for believers to do that. But here in First John, that's what you're supposed to do. All right, Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Restoration is a goal of the Father. He wants to see people restored. That's a goal. If we see someone overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So First John talks about you see somebody in sin, go to the Father. If they're sinning a sin, is not to death. Now here, when he, he exhorts us, Paul exhorts us here, he says if you see someone overtaken in a trespass, this thing has got hold of them. We're not just talking about they slipped up, they fell into sin, we're talking about something that's got hold of them. You who are spiritual, restore Restoration has always got to be the thing. We're not here to embarrass. We're here to restore. We're not here to publicly admonish. We're here to restore. So you want to take that person aside privately and begin to talk with them. And then don't talk to anybody else about it. That's not our goal. That's not our responsibility to tell anyone else about what we saw. But you know that flesh get fired up in you and you just, well, I know something. <laughs> and we just kind of want to get out there and say it. That's a, that's a sign of someone immature and someone that God cannot trust. We need to make sure that we keep these things to ourselves. It doesn't come to that spot yet. You go to that person, you try and restore them. If they listen and they're restored, great. We let it go. We forget about it. We don't need to do anything more with it at all. So restoration is always the first goal. Preservation of the body would override that. We want to restore. Restoration is God's goal. But preservation of the body is, will will certainly override this. I cannot restore a brother or sister into the body if it's going to hinder the preservation of of that body. So I got to understand, so I got to deal with the sin. If they won't deal with the sin, and there are certain sins in the Word of God that say when we're involved with them, get out of the body. It's it's not good. It's going to cause you a problem. You know, how many have ever gotten splinters? You get a splinter, you get that splinter in there, it's, uh, it's not part of your body. And it's bringing other things into your body. And then it gets, begins to get infected. And you know, I get splinters all the time, and I get those exploding splinters. You ever had an exploding splinter? I get them, get them all the time. They go into your finger, and they kind of explode, and they go in all kinds of different directions. And so you have to dig them out. I've had them in my finger enough times, and I know the pain that comes from it. And the, you know, right now it's a little bit of pain. But down the road, it's a whole lot of pain because it just starts to infect and, and do stuff. And so um, I will dig it out to the point of bloodshed because I know what's going on down the road if I don't get it. And, and this is what we have to do sometimes in the body of Christ. You have to be willing to go through some pain to get that stuff out because if not, it's gonna be a, <laughs> it, can be a, it can be a problem. Infections can be nasty. 
And that's what he wants this to prevent these kind of infections. You know, one of the things of uh, uh, keeping a reef tank, I don't know if I've ever told you this part, but one of the dangers of a reef tank is it's an enclosed environment. So you have to be careful when your hands go in the water. You cannot have an open cut. If you have an open cut, if there is any kind of parasite or infection in the water, it will find its way into you. And salt water just breeds stuff that fresh water can't even dream about. It's just, it can get just uh, downright nasty in there. I've seen the pictures of guys who have reef tanks who went into their tanks with an open sore or a cut, and um, they get an infection that they say can't be healed. It just stays there and it, all, the t- all the time. And so, you know, I've had days I'm supposed to clean the tank. I've got the water ready. I've got everything going, and I'm in the shop. Oh, I got cut. Now, if I can do it and keep the one hand out of the tank... I'll go ahead and do it. But if I can't, if I got it on two hands, well, I just got to wait until I get enough of a scab going on in there before I go in there and and take care of it because it's just not something you want to do. Those kind of infections hurt the body. And and what God is saying here is we got to first off remove the infection before we allow that to get back into the body again. This is important. This is imperative. We got to have that picture. Restoration is great, but preservation of the body is God's first and foremost. And we have to keep that in our mind. But he says, restore in a spirit of gentleness. The way in which I restore, it's important. It's not a small matter. It's important how I restore that person. In Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we, recomm- we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So he had, what he had there is people that are going about, living life, eating, but not working. If they are not working, how are they eating? Well, they got some people in the church. Like, you know, he's talking about people that are in the church. So they must be, uh, you know, uh, brother, can you spare some money? Uh, can you help me out here? Uh, can you do... I don't have any money, uh, not working right now. And uh, just asking other people for, for things, and one by one, they they uh, you know giving them some, some stuff. Paul calls this disorderliness. And there are some people back in Paul's day who had the idea that they had a right to live this way. Do we see any of that going on today? <laughs> we see this going on today. Paul talks about people who will not work for a living but sponge off of everyone else, he calls them disorderly. Disorderly. That's what he uses the word for. Now, we've got things in place right now. We have all kinds of disorderly people. They're making a living out of it. You know, we've got uh, people out there, they have kids because the government will pay them money based on how many kids they have and give them more food because of how many kids they have. And you got people who go in and they take foster kids because the government will pay them money. They're not taking care of them. They're just bringing the kids in. And Paul calls this disorderly. Where do we leave off? Verse 12. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. I see you talk about that today. People eating their own stuff and you'll, you'll be called all kinds of names. But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. For if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, this word here, keep company, is only used three times, and all three times it's used in the same manner. Don't keep company with disorderly people. Don't keep company with people that are involved in this sin. Don't keep company with people who live like this. And the, the word itself doesn't shed, there's not a whole lot of light to shed on this word. Um, 
It's basically don't mingle, don't have associations with. I, I broke this word down. This is actually a compound word of three words that are all put together. One of the words means mingle. And if you break that down and you go and, and you look at that in the word, remember when they, they uh, uh, mixed uh, wine and vinegar to give it to Jesus? It says that they were mingled. That's the word here is talking about put together. So all it's talking about is putting them in, a, uh, in an area and kind of mixing them up. And what he's saying is don't keep company. Do not keep company. Don't get into a social mixing up type of a, uh, atmosphere with these folks who do this so that they would become ashamed is the goal. Don't, don't, they need to become ashamed for their way of life. Because their way of life is not right. And a lot of times, Christians are walking in such a way as to make sure, well, I don't want them to feel bad. They feel bad, you know, they may not come around church anymore. They may not come around me anymore. They might go over to more of the unsaved people and, and things of that nature. Paul's not, uh, not exhorting us to do that. He says, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. You can't get too much clearer than that. And he originally started this off talking about lazy people. Not even people involved in, in the lifestyle sins we were talking about. The homosexuality, the adultery, the fornication, things like that. But this is a lifestyle sin in that it's laziness. So laziness would be another habitual or lifestyle sin. People that are lazy, if they're going to continue to be lazy, you need to deal with it. And, uh, and this is something that we've got to do. Now, we've seen, we've seen people... How many of y'all see people you know, on the side of the road? I've, you feel bad about it because there are some people that are really in a bad situation. But there's a lot of folks out there who have poor clothes and they put the poor clothes on to go out there and work the streets. They work the streets because they get more money working the streets than they do if they had a real job. And so you get to the point you just want to be cold to all of them. You know, they come up to the car, you want to look the other way. Because uh, I don't know if you're legitimate. and We don't know if they're legitimate or not. And uh, it's uh, there's something. But how many times have we heard that? You know, we had we have a guy who floats around here now and then. You know, can you can you spare me five dollars for some soap? Stuff like that. And uh, we we tried to you know get everybody here to be on the same page. Look, if they does do that, we've told them there's only two people in this church he's allowed to come to and ask for money. But if you get that and you know people out here and, and they're panhandling, they do stuff. Don't don't feel like you got to give to them. Give what God says to give, but don't give out of guilt or anything like that. That's not what we're supposed to be here to do. There's a laziness, and Paul's putting this into a habitual lifestyle sin. And they need to get out of that. And you're not helping them by keeping them in it. Hebrews chapter 10, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Fellowship with each other is a good thing. Because it helps us to stir up love and, and uh, good works. That's why we get together. That's why we fellowship together. It stirs us up in, in these kind of things. So we want to do. People who, who have, are, are a fan group of certain groups, if you're a football fan, if you're a football fan of a certain team, you like to get around people that are also a fan of that particular team because they stir you up. They get you going on some of these things. So we get together. He says, don't, don't forsake your assembling of yourselves together because you stir each other up for love and good works. We're all fans of God. We love God. Part of His kingdom. Part of His family. And so we get together and, and um, stir each other up on that. We're not perfect. We've got problems ourselves, certainly. But this is what we're here to do. To stir each other up. If you bring people into the body of Christ that have these habitual lifestyle sins they're going to stir people up in a wrong way. And so he says you deal with them, but if you can't deal with them, can't get rid of that stuff, then you need to stop, keep company with these, with these folks. But he said don't treat them like an enemy. Treat them like a, treat them like a, a brother that's fallen. So we're to stir up good behavior in each other. Bad attitudes towards sin, they can spread. And boy, have we ever seen that in churches. We've seen churches adopt policies that allow sin in the church because a bad attitude towards the sin spread. 
Because people had an attitude towards, well, homosexuality, these people love God. Surely we need to allow them in the church. We need to change our policies. We need to change our policies about people that are committing adultery. We need to change our policies about people that are lazy. We need to change our policies about some other things. In second, um, well, I put, I, I put a little summary here in, in here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, that when leaving the company of a person, it is easier to do so when we also leave the love for that person. When we do what he says, and, and he says, don't keep company with them. For a lot of people, it's easier for me not to keep company with someone that I did keep company with if I also leave the love for that person. And so we, you'll see people that once the, the company has been parted, that they begin to say, begin to think things about that person. Well, they were never really a believer. Well, I never really liked them anyway. Well, they did these things and I wasn't so sure that that was God. See, we feel like we have to, to, to uh, not walk in love to them. It's easier for us if I'm not walking in love towards them, if I don't feel that love to them, than it is if I um, have that love and try and keep that company away. But we're not ever exhorted to not love them. We're exhorted to not keep company with them. That's a harder thing to do when we're, supposed to, when we're allowed to also love them. God loves them. We can still love them, but you don't care about company. So hold on to the love. Leave the company. Hold on to the love. Don't, uh, don't adopt any other co- anything else to do. Some people want to hold on to the love and hold on to the company. That's the wrong combination. Some folks want to leave the company and leave the love. That's the wrong combination. Hang on to the love. Forsake the company. Let it go. Say in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have be believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So now we have another lifestyle sin here added to the list that we already had, and this is rebellion, the, the divisiveness. He says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. How many of you know people that can make a battle out of anything? These are people that are taken to becoming divisive. Then no matter what topic you get on, they will find a way to become divisive about it and just stir people up. And, you know, I got my view and, and that's it. And, and uh, just these are divisive people. Now, that's, that doesn't mean just cut them off right there. Just you, do, you start looking at them. Wait a minute. Hold on. This, this person, no matter what we get into, they're going to be divisive. They're going to be doing... We've got we to gotta hold on to that. He says, avoid these things, foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Now, there's some times that we've had some conversations with people on some important topics, but it begins to go down a path that's useless. Well, we need to just Drop it. Uh, then we're not going to get any, anywhere good with this. So we just drop it. We're not trying to be divisive. We're not trying to stir up things. But avoid foolish disputes. doesn't say avoid disputes. Because there are some things that are worth disputing. You know, the, the folks that get into this ultra grace thing. I'll dispute that to anyone. Because that to me is not foolish. That's, that's pivotal. People who want to, dis, who want to dispute the uh, social laws. That uh, should be in, the church should adopt. No, we're going to dispute that. People who want to say that abortion ought to be uh, it, it's, it's okay by God. No, that's wrong. And we're going to dispute. There are some things that are not foolish disputes, but there are other things that just don't matter a whole lot. And we have to learn to let those things go. Genealogies, he says, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first. And second, admonition. Now, this is a rebuke. This is not just correct. This is getting into a place of rebuke. They have refused God's correction to it. They refused the gentle correction that has come from other people. Now we're in an all-out rebuke. We've rebuked them one time. Maybe they changed and they went right back into it. Maybe they didn't change, went right back into it. You rebuked them a second time. What's he say to do after that? You're done. After that, it's over. He said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. They are a warped person who keeps going back into this type of disputes. I mean, why in the world do people... Some people just like disputes, it just seems like. You know, I, don't, I don't like them a whole lot. I, I'll get involved in a little bit, but after a while, it's just like, you know what, what are we disputing for? What are we going over on all this sort of stuff for? We don't, we don't know. If it's, if it's uh, something that's uh, useful, something that's imperative with the word, we, then we stay there. No, no, I'm not giving in on this. But you can only argue with it. So if someone is not going to accept the authority of the word of God on the issue, there's really no sense in going any further. This is what the word of God says. Yeah, but I think it, well, that's where we're going to part. Because you think this, but the word of God says this. So um, you go with what you think. I'm going to stay with what the word of God says. And that's the direction that you go. Now, if that person wants to kill, keep going on and pushing their opinion, We've had people come through church here. You guys don't get to see all that stuff that goes on. We've had people come through in the church and they want to uh, pursue their opinion about something. I've approached some people that's not in the Word of God. Yeah, but uh, I've seen this be real functional, real helpful over here and and it's not in the Word of God. We had one person who came on through. I didn't get involved in too much of this. My wife did with, with it. But they came on in and they were disputing the usage of the... Um, the, what are those uh, horns they used to use in Israel? The shofars. They were disputing the shofar. And my wife was uh, disputing. This is years ago, many, many years ago. And so this person actually uh, either printed or emailed her 27, 30, 40 pages worth of material on the shofar and all the things they were doing. If you, if you blow it a certain way, that you attract this aspect of the Spirit of God. And if you blow it another certain way, you will uh, rebuke the enemy. And all these different things. And they had all these different sounds that you would make and all the... Uh, uh, but it's not in the Word of God. See, that's stupid. And I'll tell them... Unfortunately, I'll tell them right to their face, that's stupid, we don't do that. Because I know that in order to deal with these people, I have to get them offended. And then either once they're offended, they either leave or they wise up. But to just uh, kind of, you know, just, well, you know, Ronald, I just don't think we agree with that. We'll just disagree on, no, because I know they're going to come in and they're going to try and do some stuff. And I don't know if you remember this, but, but this is probably 10, 15 years ago. We had somebody who came in the church. They knew. Have you ever seen the flag, flag theology? Yeah, they knew I was against anything going on with flag theology. Now, I'm not against flags. If people want to bring in flags, and I've seen people bring in flags in the worship service and stuff like that, it's all right. It's... To me, it's a low-end worship. Low-end worship. It's kind of choreographed and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's, if you want to bring... That's, I'm not into it. But, you know, it's, I'm not against it. But, no, this person was bringing in flag theology that you have certain flags to ward off certain evil spirits. And you, you, you get trained on how to move the flags and wave the flags and what to do with the flags in order to keep certain evil spirits away. So we had a special meeting going on and these people aren't a member of the church but they came on out to the church and uh, they thought they could get away with this and so they snuck into the back of the church which is not real big but they went in the back and they started waving this flag around. Well, I saw the flag waving. I didn't waste any time. I went on back and said, what are you doing? Service is going on. Worship is going on. I went back and said, what are you doing? He said, well, um, and he's you know, trying to explain, what we don't do that here. You don't? I said, you know we don't. Put it down. He put it down. Now, we didn't see them many more times after that. <laughs> I've seen him a number of times since then, and he's always very, very nice and, and uh, cordial and stuff like that, but we don't talk about anything important. And, uh, you know, the, those kind of things will go on. You'll never see that. I don't bring it up when it's going on. We don't want people to be embarrassed or, you know, maybe they'll get over that thing and, and, and come on back, but <laughs> maybe they don't either. Uh, there's some, some ridiculous things going on in there. Some of you have been around here for a while know that for a long time I kept having to deal with the area of deliverance. Teaching on Sunday mornings, bringing it out in the teaching, telling things about it because people kept trying to come in and underhandedly bringing that teaching in. And so I would uh, just, uh, you know, God would show it to me. This is being trying to work into the, into the church. So I said, well, all right, we'll just teach them the truth on the thing and I just would teach you the truth on the thing and, and every time somebody came in and tried to implant that, it just didn't, it had nothing... The seed starved, is what it was. <laughs> there was no water, there was no place for it to take root, and it starved and it went away. We haven't had to do that in a long time. 
but having been warned by God that uh, that was that was trying to come in, so we haven't had to had to do anything about that. But those kind of things, so we'll try. People try and come in and and do stupid things like that. Now, to their to their face, I'll say things to about them and to them that I won't say in front of here to you all. I won't use language that I wouldn't use elsewhere, but I'll call them stupid. I'll call them ignorant, and I'll call them divisive and destructive. And I'll use those kind of terminology with them because my goal is to offend them. Because if they aren't offended, they won't change. I've dealt with them too many times. They're stuck in something that is unscriptural, not taught in Scripture, and bent on bringing everyone else they can around here. My, my first goal is God's goal, which is the preservation of the body, not that individual. First off is the preservation of the body. Then we go after the individual. But a lot of times those, those folks, I'll tell you what, some of the stuff that goes on in this area, whew, man, I'll tell you what. We had, um, we had a couple of years, I don't know, many, many years ago, had a whole family and decided to leave here to go to a church that did weird stuff. I mean weird, really, because they, they were attracted to it. Weird. Took their kids, went on off. We, I sat them down. I said, you know, this is this is not going to help you. This is not going to be good. This is not grounded. You're going to you're going to you're going to hurt your kids. We actually use that term. I told them you're going to hurt your kids. They did what they wanted. They took them, took them out, and the kids are not following after God anymore. I totally left everything with that. And you know, parents got to be careful. There are some really weird doctrines that go on out there. And folks will come on in, and when they do, they try and be divisive. They want to get this group. Well, who can we get? And they actually have, they have a radar. I think Satan just begins to show them. You can get this one, this one, this one, and this one. And so they begin to try and gravitate to those folks. Uh, they're, they're weaker. They're newer in the Christian circles. They, they gravitate to them, and they, you know, you, those kind of folks, you know what you do with them? You put them out of the church. You put them out of the church. We have told some people, <clears throat> don't come back. You're not welcome here. We've made them feel unwelcome because the preservation of the body is more important than bringing somebody in for the purpose of helping them who doesn't want to be helped. All they want to do is infect everybody else. So we don't have those kind of things come in. We avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. They're unprofitable. They're useless. They don't help us out. So I rejected divisive man after the first and second admonition. The first and second admonition. This is talking about, <coughs> excuse me, it's talking about somebody who is in the church. They're part of the body. They're starting to cause some division. You go up there and you rebuke them. Then they continue and they do it. He says, go up to them a second time and rebuke them. You go up to them a second time and then they do it again. Now you don't rebuke anymore. You get rid of them. A lot of times the ones I was talking to you about are people that are not in the church, but they're trying to come in. Those I just outright reject. You go out. You go out. If I pick up on them that they, they are not teachable, that they are set, that these false doctrines are, are, are godly, that they're in the Bible even though they're not, then I know that they're going to be bent on trying to get those principles into people. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in, in places where I was at in, in uh, years past. And they're destructive. And they hurt people. And we can't have that kind of stuff go on. Rebellion is a very big concern to God. In Romans 14, verse 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him not... Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So here in the area of food, he's, he's basically saying, look, uh, there are some folks out there, and they're weak, and they only eat these things, and, and not these ones over here. They feel that these are evil. They feel that these are bad. Well, just don't go eating these things out in front of them. You know, that don't give them a place to stumble. But let's not have uh, discussions over, let's not have battles over these kind of things. This is what we usually see just in this area and, you know, in this country, you certainly see uh, vegetarians, 
are generally not content unless everyone is a vegetarian. Vegans are generally not content unless everyone is a vegan. That if you don't live a lifestyle of a vegan in front of a vegan, not, not all, but maybe something like 90% are out there. It just seems like it's a high number anyway, whatever it is. They, uh, they want everyone to live the way they live. And they must. Now, if you eat meat and you're okay with eating meat, generally you're okay with anyone who wants to eat vegetables or become a vegan. If, if you're sitting next to somebody and they want to be a vegetarian, you're, well, be one. That's fine. You're, you're, isn't that the way that it is, though? I mean, anybody who eats meat is generally okay with anybody who eats vegetables. But people who eat vegetables look down on people who eat meat. That's just generally the way it is. And that's, that's wrong. If you find somebody who has that mentality, they're divisive. They're rebellious. And they're not going to bring a good attitude around. Don't, don't be having that kind of stuff come in. Because it certainly can with, uh, with the food. He goes on in Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. This is what they try and do. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. There are people who will cause divisions. People who try and cause offenses. They're contrary to good doctrine. They're contrary to the things that you've learned. He says avoid them. Avoid them. Have you ever had people that are just argumentative and inside yourself you feel like I just want to avoid them? But... You hear this, this voice in your head saying, that's not very Christian. You need to get over there and you need to fellowship with them. You need to try and help them out. Apparently, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says, avoid them. If you've got people and all they want to do is cause strife about certain things, uh, you got, I think you've got two ways to go about this. One is avoid them or two, do like Jesus did. Make their existence as close to hell as you can. You get in there and you just, you know, if they're a, if they're a, I'll just use it, if they're a, uh, an aggressive vegetarian, then you come on in there and you just, you just come up with facts and all sorts of stuff to just throw at them and just make, if they want to come after you with two facts, you come after them with ten. And you just overwhelm them with, so that they don't talk to you anymore. You, you hit them with questions that they can't answer. You embarrass them in front of the people they're trying to embarrass you with to the point that they don't, answer, they don't do it anymore because that's what Jesus did. They kept coming to Jesus and asking him questions. Where's your authority come from? How are you doing? How, where does, uh, why why do you do this on the Sabbath? And all these different things that are thrown to Jesus. Finally, Jesus says, I'm going to ask you a question. How come David calls Messiah Lord when he's actually his son? And they couldn't answer that. And it says from that point on, they, uh, they didn't ask him any more questions. Now, they didn't ask him any more questions because they were afraid of his questions. His questions made them look bad in front of the people that they wanted to look good for. So apparently, that's a, that's a uh, strategy that Jesus employed. If Jesus employed that strategy, then you can too. If they want to try and make you look bad, you have the real facts on your hand. Hit them with the real facts. And make them look bad. Don't feel bad about it. Make them look bad. That's it. Or else just avoid them. One or the other. But don't get in there and just let them talk. Let them go on and just avoid the, the, the dispute. Either avoid them or hit them with everything you got. And make them look foolish. Because they are foolish. But you can, uh, you can go one or two, two ways of that. But rebellion is just as much in this group as the homosexuals and the, uh, those who commit adultery and those who are in fornication. 
they're just as much in this, in this group. They go around, they try and cause divisions. We can't have that kind of stuff going on. And God, Paul says, deal with them once, deal with them twice, and that's it. And that's it. That's why I told you there are certain people, they will not come back. They will not come into this church. I've dealt with them before. I did the once twice. I think I went a little bit further. I think I did it three times. Shouldn't have done it. That's my fault. But they're not coming back in here. They can go someplace else. They're not coming in here. Because I was not told to restore them. Now there are certain ones we are told to do. And that's where we get into this last part in Second Corinthians. To reinstate. Not told to reinstate rebellious people. Do you understand that? Rebellious people were not told to reinstate. Sinners we can reinstate. But rebellious people, and they come in as sheep, I'm sorry, forgive me. And all the while, all they want to do, because this is their sin. Rebellion is to come in and you, you um, say all kinds of nice things and you make nice and you make promises and you make treaties and then you underhandedly hurt things. Preservation of the body. You've got to stick with that. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest while, when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is a joy of you all. For out of much affliction... In anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Now, many people think that he's uh, writing about the, the guy we looked at two weeks ago in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, who was living with the mom or the, uh, his, his father's uh, wife, so forth. The punishment which is inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and, for, and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything I also forgive, for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not all ignorant of his devices. Now you read this and you're trying to, I don't know about you, you're trying to make heads or tails of this. I have a certain direction that I feel like Paul's saying. I looked at some of the uh, translations that are out there. The message seemed to come close. Now they went in a certain direction with this. I'll read this to you. That's why I decided not to make another visit that could only be painful to both of us. <coughs> if by merely showing up, I would put you in an embarrassing, painful position, how would you then be free to cheer and refresh me? So what this is saying here is, instead of me visiting and straighten up that matter before I send a letter. Because if I visited, you're supposed to cheer me up and I'm coming in there, I'm bringing sorrow to you and... You're bringing sorrow to me and it just wouldn't have been all that good. So I sent a letter basically so that you can clear this matter up so when I did come to you, it could be good. That's w that was my reason for writing a letter instead of coming so I wouldn't have to spend a miserable time disappointing the very friends I had looked forward to cheering me up. I was convinced at the time I wrote it that what was best for me was also best for you. As it turned out, there was pain enough just in writing that letter. More tears than ink on the parchment but I didn't write it to cause pain. I wrote it so you would know how much I care, or oh, more than care, love you. Verse 5. Now regarding the one who started all this, the person in question who caused all this pain, I want you to know that I am not the one injured in this as much as, with a few exceptions, all of you. So I don't want to come down too hard. What the majority of you agree to as punishment is punishment enough. Now the majority there means that they decided on the punishment, but not everybody was in on it. Some may have decided they wanted to go more strict. Some may have decided they wanted to go less strict, but the majority went with a certain punishment, and that's what they did. Now was the time to forgive this man and help him back on his feet. If all you do is pour on the guilt, you could very well drown him in it. My counsel now is to pour on the love. In the area 
of of rebellion, he doesn't he doesn't exhort them to restore, but in this one he does. He says he has repented of the sin that he was in, whatever it is that you did caused him pain. He's repented. He's changed his ways. Now, if you continue to go in the direction that you had gone in, you're going to make him feel more and more guilt. He's going to drown underneath the guilt. You need to bring him back in. The focus of my letter wasn't on punishing the offender, but on getting you to take responsibility for the health of the church. And that was real important for them to understand. It's, it's not that, hey, you need to, we need to focus on the punishment of the person who's offended. No, you need to be careful of the health of the church because the preservation of the body is more important than the restoration of the individual. See, sometimes we lose sight of that. We get so caught up in the restoration of the individual, we, we forget the preservation of the body. That's why I brought up that splinter example to you. You can get so caught up with the preservation of that one area of skin that you don't want to hurt it and dig out stuff. But... Um, preservation of the body that's important so if you forgive him I forgive him basically he's saying this if you've seen that there's repentance if you've seen that things have changed and you forgive him then I will forgive him because you did don't think I'm carrying around a list of personal grudges the fact is that I'm joining in with your forgiveness as Christ is with us guiding us so just because I wrote that letter about dealing with him doesn't mean that I'm going to come in here and I'm going to have a personal grudge against this guy I'm not carrying personal grudges, he says. That's not what, it, what I'm about. What I'm about is if you guys as a body have seen to restore him for the health of the body and your focus now is on the health of the body, then what you have decided, I'll go along with. If you forgive it, I forgive. After all, we don't want to unwittingly give Satan an, op- an opening for yet more mischief. We're not oblivious to his sly ways. Now, the main problem with habitual sins is a lack of repentance. So if this man came to a place where he repented, then he broke the, the uh, pattern of the habitual sin. And that's what we've got to see. When we find people that are involved in a habitual sin, when they break that pattern, we need to be there and be able to offer forgiveness and restoration for that one. But until that happens, no. We don't do it. In the sexual, moral, habitual sins, look for repentance, not perfection, when you reinstate. We don't need them to be perfect in all, that, in all those ways. I'll give you an example. Say that they're caught up in homosexuality and they have uh, signed themselves off to, no, I'm a homosexual. God's for me as a homosexual. I've got a partner. We're going to get married. We're living together, all that sort of stuff. That's a habitual lifestyle sin. Now, say that they have come to the church and they say, I left that situation. I moved out of that place. I've renounced my life of homosexuality and I want to uh, come back to the body. And we bring them back in the body. But they have a slip up the next week of a homosexual uh, encounter. But they come about, I slipped up. Ah, I just fell back into it. That's not, reinstating that is different than reinstating one who's involved in the habitual sin. We, we can't look for perfection. We're looking for a change of heart. And that's what we need to see. In 1 Thessalonians, our last scripture here, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. We've got to make sure that we not only pursue what is good for ourselves, but also what is good for all. If what is good for me is bad for all, then it's really not good for me. Because if the body suffers, I will suffer. That's what Paul's trying to get them to understand. So we look for those things. To, we're not trying to kick all sinners out of the church. But what we're trying to do is you cut off fellowship with those who have resigned that my sin is godly. That have a habitual lifestyle sin. And are not changing it. That's what we're, that's what we're needing to talk about. That's what we're needing to do. And it's not that way with every sin. He, he's, the Bible has pulled out certain lifestyle sins. And those things were homosexuality, uh, adultery, fornication, drunkenness. These kind of things are in there. Uh, rebellion. These are, these are the ones we need to look out for. These are the ones that when we are involved in this, we need to take a different course of action than we do for other things. 
So here's the main thing. Walk in love. We've got to maintain that area of walking in love. We can't forsake that. Walking in love means what is good for the kingdom. What is good for the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is looking at what is going on here now and what is going on here in the future. And it looks at the kingdom as far as the overall kingdom. All of the bodies of Christ all the way around. The, the saints that are in the past, saints that are in the future. The future coming kingdom, we're looking at all of that. That's the first thing. Second one is the body. That's the body that we're a part of, the church that we're a part of. Third is the believer. We've got to walk in love, but we've got to keep the big picture in mind. The kingdom of God. Remember that Jesus' rebuke of Peter? You are not mindful of the kingdom. We've got to stay mindful of the kingdom. We've got to stay mindful of the body of Christ. And we've got to stay uh, mindful of what is good for the believer. If we keep that pattern in there. If we keep that part going on. Don't put the believer ahead of the kingdom or the body. Then we're going to be in better shape in understanding this. There are some times we have to take some drastic action. Generally, you're just not going to just cast somebody out of the church. You're going to have some conversations with them first. And they're going to reject those conversations. They're going to reject that instruction. They're going to reject what is coming from the Word of God. If what they are doing is not denounced in the Word of God, then it's probably not something they ought to be kicked out for. But if it's denounced in the Word of God and it's put into one of these lists as one that don't keep company, then we have to not keep company even though I want to, because I still have a love for them. You're not supposed to separate yourself from that love. Separate from their, their presence, separate from their company, but not from the love. You can still love them, but not have, the, not have the company of them. And that's a drastic action to take. But he says you need to make them feel ashamed of their lifestyle. And right now they're not feeling ashamed. And there's a whole lot of churches that people in these lifestyle sins can go into and feel very comfortable about it. You look at the, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have that many friends on, on Facebook. I think I've got like 150, uh, something like that. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not many friends up there. Most of it is church. There's some other ones that are out there. I've got some people from college. I've got a handful of people from high school that I've, uh, I think, three. There's <laughs> not many of, that I've found or even looked for in, the, in that particular area. Um, got some running buddies in the area that don't go to church here and, uh, and, and keep them in and uh, there's, there's not a whole lot that I have out there. So, But in the li- little bit that I dipped my toes in the water of Facebook with 150, 200 friends, whatever the number is, um, you know, I see some of the stuff that's going on and the people that proclaim their lifestyle sins as normal. This is normal. This is what we, this is what we do. I'm not embarrassed about this. I mean, they're putting things up there on Facebook that Christians would have been embarrassed about, that anybody know it. Now, we don't, I don't care if anybody knows. In fact, I'm going to put it up on Facebook and let everybody know this is what I'm doing. I, I, I don't understand it. But that's how comfortable that we've gotten. In some churches, people are very comfortable in, in doing that and just having a seat in the service and people are welcome in. Hey, glad to have you here. Um, it's not the attitude that Paul had. It's not the attitude the church is supposed to have. We need to stand up to some sin and there needs to be some preservation of the body that says when you come in, you are bringing stuff with you that you do not wish to get rid of and that will be an infection on the folks that are here. And if you're not willing to get rid of it, then you can't come in. You can't be part of the fellowship. That's a drastic action and it's a hard action, but it is something we have to take and do. Thank God it doesn't come up all that much. But when it does, that's the purpose for it, is to preserve the body. As the Jesus taught us, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. And we can't let that kind of stuff go on and, and not be dealt with. If people decide that my sin is not only going to be okay for me, I'm going to teach it as being okay with God. Now we got a problem. And that's what we have to deal with with that because there's people out there they've got an adulterous relationship they've got um, drug issues that they're doing they've got rebellion issues and they'll talk about how God is in it and God has has taken me along this way and look at what God is doing for me over here 
Yeah, we we got to make sure that people know that's not the way that God operates. Father, I thank you for the help that you give us in the Word to deal with some of these tough things. That what we're seeing in the area of lifestyle sins is not new to our generation. It's been going on for a lot of time, a lot of time. And you told us how to deal with it back in the New Testament time, and that's no different how we deal with it now. Father, I thank you that you give us the boldness to stand up for your word, to stand up for the preservation of the body. But I thank you that you help us to restore, to correct. But if people are refusing those things, that you have given us another way to go. And we know from your word that it's okay to do. But we always walk in love, always ready for them to make a turn, always being like the Father waiting to see them make that turn, come to their senses and come back to the way that they know is right. Thank you for the help, Father, that you give us to restore and to help people not get into those problems to begin with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.